By the way, the name of this sermon, God Save Sinners, could be said for every sermon given from this church. So it's uh, not unique and not original. Um, we're going to continue our, our series through Genesis today, going through Genesis 10 and 11. And um, i got to start out with some, some stories. When, uh, before we came to Fort Smith, we were in Louisville, Kentucky. And if you know, you're, I, we're finishing up my medical training and doing neurology there. And just across from Louisville is Indiana, across the Ohio River, if you remember your geography. And what do they call people from Indiana? Why do they call them Hoosiers? Well, this was a big debate in Louisville because we always made fun of the people from Indiana. We called them Hoosiers. And why do they call them Hoosiers? Well, no one really knows, but we finally came down with the conclusion that they called them Hoosiers because they would say, they would yell to one another, Who's your daddy? <laughs> so, Who's your daddy resulted in Hoosiers. And that's kind of the beginning of this sermon. We're going to talk a little bit about heritage and parentage, and, and, and that becomes extremely important. I, I currently work with the Choctaws, and to be a Choctaw is very important. And if you can prove you're a Choctaw, there is a lot of benefit. You get free medical care, they pay for education, they provide you jobs. There's benefits to knowing where you come from and what your heritage is. Um, this pursuit of, of finding out where we come from has become almost an obsession with folks. So we have the proliferation of Ancestries.com, 24andMe, you're looking at our genetics to see where we're from. Now, I have a, a, a nephew who was very interested to find out about his parentage, where he came from. My brother, his dad, had died, so he was unable to get his genetic testing. So he asked if I would do it. And I said, Psh, I don't care. Sure, I'll spit in the cup. So I spit in the cup. And, and let me tell you that my parentage, I believed that 50% of my parentage from my dad was German. My grandparents came over from Russia, Germans living in Russia, came over to the United States in the early 20th century, and that was 50% of my heritage. And the other 50% was for my mom, obviously, who was, who was Scottish. And her main name was Wallace. She believed she was from William Wallace, Braveheart. <laughs> so we got 23andMe done, and it turns out that I am not German. I am Polish, 30% Polish and 30% English, and there's no Scottish in there. What do you do with that? <laughs> well, there's a lot of other stuff in there, let me tell you. But this has become an obsession. When we look at the 10th chapter of Genesis, it's dealing with that, that parentage of where we come from. And I'm not going to read it because I can't pronounce the names. And like you, most of the time when we look at that genealogy, we kind of buzz through it. We kind of ignore it. But I'm telling you that this is critical. And I didn't believe that until I started studying this passage. Here's what um, William Albright. William Albright was uh, a biblical archaeologist, and he was one of the authenticators of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948. And he said this about the 10th chapter of Genesis. The 10th, 10th chapter of Genesis stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without remote parallel, even among the Greeks, where we find the closest approach 
to a distribution of people and genealogical framework, the Table of Nations remains an astonishing accurate document. Now this can be used and should be used as a substantiation for the historicity and the truthfulness of Scripture. Here we are in a period of history that's almost prehistory, just after the flood, where we're beginning to have the spread of nations, and Moses, through the Spirit of God, lays down where people come from. And to summarize that, remember, remember that all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture, including this genealogy. If we look at this, it, I'm just going to summarize for us. First of all, we have Noah's curse we talked about last week. Noah's curse was... He said this when he woke up drunk and he found out what his children have done. He said, Curse be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He said also, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servants. We're going to see that as you go through that genealogy in Genesis 10, that's what happened. It pays particular attention to Japheth. And Japheth is the father of all those people who are of Indo-European descent. Everybody from India north going up into Russia and part of China, across to Europe, and then across the Bering Straits to the United States are descendants of Japheth. All the people that, have, that occupied North and South America are descendants of Japheth. We know that the descendants of Ham migrated to the south. They went to Africa. Part of them went to Africa and part of them went to the Far East to become the, the lineage of the Orientals. And then we know of Sham. And Sham stayed in that Fertile Crescent area and became the, the Semite people. We have anti-Semites. We have Semites. The Semite people include the Jews and the people who were from them. And this was fulfilling that distribution that, that Moses is telling about through the, where the people go. This is called the Table of Nations. And by this being a proof of Scripture, these genealogies have been proven today. If you look at language and the study of language and where language comes from, we know that English is part of that Indo-European descent of languages, supporting that group of people. We know from genetic studies that this is how it's gone, and that modern scholarship has proven what Genesis 10 talked about. Now, we don't pay much attention to that, but it can be used as a proof for Scripture. This is early on. This is, as Adam gave in his, in his introduction, we believe in a historical event, the person of Christ. And, and the Old Testament is also supported by this, this historical reality. Let me tell you, I'm going to read what Martin Luther said about this. Now, this is 500 years ago, before all the modern scholarship. Martin Luther said, this very chapter, even though it is considered full of dead words, has in it the thread that is drawn from the first world to the middle to the end of all things. From Adam, the promise concerning Christ is passed to Seth, and from Seth to Noah, and from Noah to Sham, and from Sham to Eber, from whom the Hebrew nation received its name as the heir of whom the promise about Christ was intended in, in the preference of all other people of the whole world. This knowledge of Holy Scripture 
This knowledge the Holy Scriptures reveal to us. Those who are without them live in error, uncertainty, and boundless ungodliness, for they have no knowledge about who they are or whence they came. So we pass over chapter 10, thinking it's a bunch of empty dead words, but it supports Scripture. It proves, the God, it proves Scripture, and it shows us where we came from. We're going to look at a, at a portion of that portion, part. We're going to look at a portion of chapter 10 that I can read the names of. <laughs> Genesis, look at Genesis 10, 8-12, and it should be up here. Okay. Crush, Father Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kelne, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, and Calais, and Rizan, between Nineveh and Calais. That is the great city. Now, I have to tell you a story about Adam, Pastor Adam, that is. When he was in first or second grade, they had name day at his school. And I convinced him to take a name. They would pick a name they wanted. I convinced him to take the name Nimrod. <laughs> now, if you think of Nimrod today, we think Nimrod's kind of, you know, in your mind, Nimrod's probably an idiot, you know, that kind of thing. But I convinced him, and I showed him in the Bible where it was. And so he went to school, and he said, uh, name day, okay, Adam, what's your name going to be? And he said, Nimrod. And his teacher gave him a hard time, said, no, that can't be your name. And he complained, and he showed them in Scripture where Nimrod was listed, and it was a good thing. Nimrod is a mighty hunter. And so he got to be called Nimrod that day, and he's still Nimrod today. No. <laughs> Let's look at who Nimrod was. He was the son of Crush, the son of Ham. He was the founder of the first kingdom. The first world kingdom was Nimrod's kingdom. Now, this is the first time in Scripture the word kingdom is used. And the thing about this, it was not God's kingdom. It was Nimrod's kingdom. Why is Nimrod important? Why do we have in this big genealogy of all these important, where people have come from and all this stuff, do we have this passage, these verses about Nimrod? Well, he's the first one to be called a mighty man. He was a mighty warrior, a mighty hunter, mighty hunter, mighty hunter, a mighty hunter before the Lord. All that sounds good. When you read casual, casually read this passage, how many people think Nimrod's kind of a cool guy with that description? I did. I thought, man, that's that's who I want to be. I want to be a mighty man, mighty hunter, mighty warrior. How wrong I was. This is not good. Nimrod's kingdom. Babylon was an affront to God and man. And we're going to learn more about that as we go through this passage. He was an affront to God because he decided that they would stay where they were. What was God's command to Noah? To spread, to fill the earth. And he didn't do that. He said, stay here. Be part of my kingdom. And all this also was an affront to man. And we're going to see this later on that he had men stay there under his leadership, not under God's. So when we read this passage, we read it kind of wrongly. Donald Barnhouse, who was a preacher-theologian, has re-translated this passage. 
And this probably puts it in the most appropriate light. Crush begat Nimrod. He began to be a, a mighty despot in the land. He was an arrogant tyrant, defiant before the face of the Lord. Therefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, a mighty despot, haughty before the face of the Lord. And the homeland of his empire was Babel, then Erech, and Akkad, and Kale, and the, and the land of Shinar. From this base, he invaded the kingdom of Syria, and built Nineveh, and Rehoboth Irar, and Calais, and Rezin between Nineveh and Calais. These made up one great city. And that's what most theologians believe about this Nimrod. And that takes us right in to chapter 11. Then let's have that up on the it's warlord. That's Nimrod. Now we're going to read chapter Genesis chapter 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butamen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with a stop in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we disperse over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. And they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. For nothing they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore the name, therefore its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the, earth, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Babylon was the initial city of Nineveh's kingdom, of his world kingdom. But Nimrod and the people of Babylon had a desire to build this without God and without the presence of God, not to even know Him. They defied His kingdom to spread. They created a, a place where the glories of man would be magnified by making a name for themselves, not for the Father. The great city was a great defiance to God. It was man's city, a secular city, a city of man, by man, for man's glory. So, where in all this does a tower come in? <clears throat> Most commentaries believe that the tower was to have religious significance. So, when you, when you, when you have this big empire, how do you get people to do what you want? You can manipulate them, and you can manipulate them through religion. And that was what we feel the tower was about, was building this tower, was going to manipulate these people, to get them to do the things that Nimmon wanted them to do. Henry Morris, who wrote uh, the Genesis record, says, Nimrod's desire to build a great empire, he realized that the people needed a religious motivation strong enough to overcome the knowledge that God had commanded them to spread. 
abroad the earth. James Montgomery Boyce, another pastor theologian, said the Bible traces all false religion to Babylon. The citizens of Babylon had rejected the knowledge of the true God. And as Romans 1 says, those who reject the knowledge of God inevitably turn to idol worship, to worshiping false gods. If you look at Revelations, Revelation 17, 4-5 says, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet adorned, adorned with gold and jewels and perils, holding in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and the impurities of sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes in the earth's abominations. If you look at the description of the tower, the tower in some translation says to reach to heaven. But it, and it means to be uh, uh, elevated. It doesn't mean they actually believe they're going to reach heaven by building a tower. First of all, they built in a lowland plain rather than a mountaintop. They started very low. So to build, it really means they built this to worship the heavens. And many people believe that there was a reputation of heaven in the top of the tower. We know that astrology originated in Babylon. We know that the Zodiac originated in Babylon. And this is all forms of Satan worship. Worshiping the created thing rather than the creature. During this passage, we have the people of Babylon saying, come, spoken by man to man against God. The second come was from God saying, God saying to God, or the counsel of God, come, let us go down to man. So it's spoken by God to God against man. There's a third come that's not present exactly in this passage. It's, we can look at it from Isaiah 1.18 where it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like chrism, like chrism, Red. They shall become like wool. And then, you know, we have the come from Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Men wanted to make a name for themselves. But the true identity, the only identity we can really have is in Christ. One of the other problems that took place in Nimrod's kingdom was the, was the problem of a unified government. What is the most common declaration at the Miss America pageant, the pageant contestants claim that they want, that they desire. World peace. Now, peace, I'm glad you all guessed that. <laughs> and it, it's kind of funny because peace is not a bad thing. We should, we should work for peace. But it's been pointed out that many times when you have peace, you have more tyranny take place than when you have disunity. Just think of the... Of the um, 
of the corporate market. If you have one product that everybody wants and you're the only, pe and you're the only people make it, you can demand what price it is, you can demand all those other things are in your control. Competition happens to be a good thing, drives down price, increases, hopefully increases the quality of the product. Well, in a government situation, if you're the only government around, what usually happens is the tyrannical government, the leaders, the ruling elite begin to have all the privileges and the rest of us have all the oppression. And there's no out. If there's only one government, there's no out. You're stuck. You have no recourse. Just take a look at any totalitarian government. Look at North Korea. You're stuck there. You can't get out. You have to, you know that the leaders of the North Korean government are not star starving, missing out on all the fine things, but their population is. So, you know, think about why God came down to disrupt that, that city. Why did God come down? It says He came down to disperse the people like He commanded to begin with. He came down to interrupt their pagan worship because they were without Him. And He came down to break up the inherent problems in that government, that one world government at the time. And that leads us to the rest of chapter 11 where God begins to provide an alternative to man's kingdom, man's leadership, man's tyranny against other men. That brings us to here comes the sun. Matter, mankind was scattered, sinful, separated from God. But God begins to provide for His creatures. Let's read chapter 10, verses 10 through the rest of the chapter. These are the generations of Sham. When Sham was 100 years old, he fathered Apashad two years after the flood. And Sham lived, after he had fathered Apashad, 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Apashad lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Apishad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And Shelah lived 30 years. He fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And Eber had lived 34 years. He fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. And Peleg fathered, or lived 30 years. He fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. And Ru fathered, lived 32 years and fathered Shirug. And Ru lived after he fathered Shirug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. And Shirug lived 30 years. He fathered Nahor. She lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And Terah had lived 70 years. He fathered Abram, Nahor, and Hera. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram, er, Abram's wife was Sarai. 
and the name of Nahor's wife of Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iskar. Now Sarai was barren and had no children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his wife, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ear of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years. And Terah died in Haran. Now that's, that's, first of all, that's a lot of people. There's a lot of people born during this time. And the thing to note about this is, this was in a continued age of spiritual decline. You don't have anybody labeled out there, uh, listed out, that was a father, a follower of God. There had to be some people, a remnant, that were followers of, of God the Father, but none are listed there. It's almost like this, this perpetual spiritual decline. Nations and people moved downward when they abandoned God. And this can, this they continue on this downward track until God intervenes. And we're seeing this now, just beginning a hint of this in this passage, which we're going to get for the rest of the book of Genesis, is that God is going to start providing a, rem- a, providing a rescue for man's spiritual decline. You know, from the very start, Adam chafed under God's law. God's law was construed to him to be a bondage. And the chief way to attempt to shake free of God's law is to deny him. You know, this our modern quest for autonomy, for individuality, is essentially the same as Adam's sin. Same as the sin of the builders of Babylon and the tower. It's to deny God. They imagined they were successful in shaking free of God, but at what cost? The cost of their personal worth and meaning. No God. No restraints. You can do what you want. But there's no meaning. Just one Life is just one big colossal accident. This passage brings us to Abram, for which we're going to see Jesus is going to come from the lineage of Jesus. God says there is good news. There is meaning in life because there is God. We were made to be companions with God. We were made partners in, in ruling the earth with God. Sin fractured that relationship. The, the solution to this for this restoration is that God is going to provide a descendant of Abram to be our Savior. The men at uh, Nimrod's time put their hope in the kingdom. There was safety in the kingdom from other folks. But they disobeyed God by not spreading out. They worshipped the creature rather than the Creator. But it really gets down to what you put your hope in. Do we put our our hope and our security in the state 
like the people Nimrod's time. How about your political party? Oh, that's pretty foolish. Do you put your hope in your bank account? Do you put your hope in your job, your savings, your retirement, your 401k, social security that may not be there tomorrow? Do you put your hope in relationships? You know, your, your spouse, your friends, your family. Do you put your hope in yourself, your intellect, your strength, your health? Do you even put your hope in your possessions? You know, the one with the most toys when he dies wins. The Lord said through Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 9, says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me that I am Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. The Psalms are full of guidance on who we should put our hope for. And I'm just going to quote a few of them. Psalms 20 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Psalms 33 says, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. But its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hold fast his steadfast love. That he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in phantom. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let Your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hoped in You. And lastly, just one of many, put not your trust in princes in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When His breath departs, He returns to the earth. On that very day, His plans perish. Who do you put your hope in? Where is your security? Is it going to be like Nimrod's folks and the government that's going to fail us? Is it going to be in yourself? It needs to be in the Lord. And, boy, am I early? And I want to close. Now, our band is not here, so. <laughs> I want to... Um, Close by um, reading a, a song by Edward Moat. He was a 19th century uh, songwriter. And most of you have heard this song before, but I also want to use it as a prayer. So if you would pray with me as I recite the words of the song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other grounds is sink all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He in 
He then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I him in him be found. In him my righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Amen.